Last week, we began a, sermon, a series of sermons that are going to take us through the book of Ephesians. Now, if you have a Bible, I would like to ask you to turn to the first to the very beginning, to the table of contents. I I want us to get a bit of perspective here. The table of contents. The Bible um, is divided. Your table of contents will probably reflect this into two major sections. Something called the Old Testament and something called the New Testament. The Old Testament. This is the part of Scripture that was written prior to the life of Jesus. And then we have the New Testament. And it starts with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, these four books, the church calls Gospels. Um, They tell the good news. They tell the story of Jesus, his life, his teachings, his death and resurrection. And each one of them is titled by the person who wrote that account of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Wrote Matthew, Mark wrote Mark, so forth, so on. Now, after those four books, the next book we have in the Bible is Acts. This is the story not of the life of Jesus, but of the early church. After Jesus rose from the dead, the church gets going, and Acts tells that story. And then after the book of Acts, the story, the Bible contains 22 letters. Letters written by various church leaders to various churches and individuals. Last week, we started a series on one of those letters. So it's a letter written after Jesus has risen from the dead, after the church has gotten started and is moving out across the Roman Empire. One of the leaders of the church, his name is Paul. And he writes a letter to a group of churches in and around Ephesus, the chief city of Asia Minor, 2,000 years ago. Now, use your table of contents if you need and find the book of Ephesians or sometimes called the letter of the Ephesians, sometimes called the epistle to the Ephesians. It has various ways of describing it. This is a letter written by Paul. Paul is actually, when he writes the letter, in prison. He's in Rome. He's not near Ephesus. He's a long way off, and he's a prisoner. Now, he writes this letter. We're not sure. It looks like it's four or five or six years after he was in this area, in the area of Ephesus. So four or five or six years before writing this letter, Paul was there. He was telling them the good news. He was telling them the gospel. He was telling them the life of Jesus, how the one and only true God has taken a hold of this world and is healing it through Jesus Christ. And then, not long after he leaves Ephesus, he gets arrested. And he gets shipped off to Rome for trial. And here is Paul sitting in a prison cell, And he's writing this letter. And he writes it in the typical way that letters were written at that time. They wrote them different than we write letters today. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. 
we, when we write a letter, if I were to write a, a, a letter to CJ, I would write, dear CJ, and then at the very end of the letter, I would identify who I was in writing it. Actually, we identify who we are at the beginning by the envelope in the return address. So really, CJ would know as soon as he sees the letter, right before he gets to the body of the letter, he would know this is from Aubrey to CJ. Now, they weren't sending letters in envelopes, so they had to include all of that in the actual letter itself. So the first line was, who wrote it? Just like the first thing you see on an envelope, who wrote it and to whom? Now, here's where it gets odd. Typically, after identifying the author and the recipient, what Paul typically did was what you typically did in letters written in the Greco-Roman Empire around this time. What Paul did was he took the normal form of letter writing and he would always tweak it just a little bit. And what he would normally do, right at the beginning of the letter, go one letter to the right. Philippians. This is a letter that Paul wrote. Also, while he was in prison, just a little bit after writing the letter to the Ephesians, he wrote the one to the Philippians. Notice how he starts. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So, again, notice he identifies the author and the recipients. Grace to you. He gives a greeting. And then look what he does. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you making all my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. This is Paul's normal pattern. Identify himself, identify who he's writing to, give a greeting, and then tell those people what he prays for them when he remembers them to God. That's his normal move. He tells the people how he's been praying for them. Now, we would do something like this today, right? If you're communicating with somebody that you love and you're a Christian, hey, I've been thinking about you. This is what I've been praying. That, that's what Paul normally did, and it actually fit the kind of formula that would occur in letters written at this time. But in Ephesians, unique among all of Paul's letters, he doesn't do that. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. In the first verse, he identifies himself. In the second verse, in the half, second half of the first verse, he identifies the Ephesians. In verse 2, he gives the greeting. And then in verse 3, what does he do? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's not telling them what he normally prays for them. He's not even really talking to them. He just breaks out in what we would call worship. He starts praising God, adoring God. Blessed be God. Three times in, the first, in that first sentence, he uses the word bless. Immediately, he begins to just pour out what ends up being the second longest sentence in the entire Bible. 202 words. Now, he goes crazy. Nearly every English translation breaks it up into multiple sentences and even multiple paragraphs. But you need to know that in Greek, there was no comma. There was no period. There was no... Any, no break, he doesn't even stop to catch his breath. When he starts in verse 3, he doesn't catch his breath until verse 14 is over. Now, students, do not write like Paul. It's called a run-on sentence. It's, so, it's like diving into this prayer. It's like going into a rabbit's warren. One phrase leads over here, and there's a, 
there's a subordinating phrase and another one, and then you lose your way, and then he goes back to here, and it's just like a big tangled jumble. English can't really do this, so most translators, they break it up, but it's this one continuous, single breath outburst of worship. And before you dive into the weeds, you have to know that. You have to hold in your mind. Every, I've been reading this over and over and over. By the way, you can read the whole book of Ephesians in 17 minutes. It's not very long, right? I encourage you. We'll be preaching through this book for the next several months. I encourage you, read through the whole book in one setting at least once a week. 17 minutes of reading, right? You can handle this. But when you're reading this first sentence... You get to, at some point in it, you just start kind of getting befuddled and you lose your train of thought. But here's what you've got to remember. This is just an avalanche of worship. What we have is this marvelous, tumbling cataract of worship. And he worships the way we do with poetry. Who wants to sing a song written like an essay? Right? His, his worship is poetic. It's built on imagery. It's evocative, just like our worship. Now, Paul has the ability to do prose, to do staccato-like, short phrases, no confusion. He does that plenty later. In fact, he does enough of that later that we all get mad at him by the end of chapter 5 because what, what is he saying to women and what is he saying to men and doesn't he think slavery is wrong and he's way too clear in chapter 5. In chapter 1, he's not using the language of doctrine in essay. He's using the language of worship. And what he's doing is he wants us to actually experience what he's experiencing, which is a welling up of praise and adoration that just comes tumbling out. And you need to read it so many times that you stop getting lost in the weeds and you can feel it washing over you, immersing you in the love and praises of God. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Three times. He uses this word bless. First it's an adjective, then it's a verb, then it's a noun. The adjective. God is blessed. That's the characteristic of who God is. He's modifying the noun God. He's telling us something about God, that God in his character, in his essence, is blessed. And since that is the core of who God is, that's what God does. He blesses. It's what God gives, blessings. The noun blessing comprehensively designates our experience of being blessed by God. What God does comes out of who God is. And what we receive from God is who God is. The being of God is expressed in the action of God. God is what God gives. God is blessing. So he gives blessing. That's where Paul starts. He's overwhelmed by this. He tumbles verb on top of adjective and then he brings noun on top of that. And it's meant to be like a snowball rolling down a mountain, gathering momentum, gathering mass, gathering volume until it overwhelms you. That this is who God is. That's where he starts. He starts heaping words and phrases in this 
profuse and effusive sentence of praise and love and adoration to God. And as you read it, especially if you read it out loud and you let it just wash over you, this prayer with its complex array of subordinate clauses and phrases whose exact relation to one another no two scholars can agree upon. If you can take it as a whole before diving in to debates about its phrases, what is most striking in this prayer, hands down, what comes up more than anything else, is how relentless Paul is in seeing that everything God has done, he has done in and through Jesus. That's what he, that's the note he beats more than any other note. The one true God is not the same as the gods and goddesses that fill the Asia Minor region. He isn't just a divine force, a vague influence of energy loosely known as a higher power. He is the one true God, the only God who made the world and who has now made himself known in and through Jesus. And as far as Paul is concerned, any picture of God that doesn't have Jesus square in the middle of it is a distortion. It is a dangerous deceit. In verse 4 through 6, God has taken the initiative to choose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is something that Paul is completely dumbfounded by. Paul can never get over the fact He is so overwhelmed with this, so overjoyed with this because of his past. He was an SS guard for the Pharisees. He was a racist, xenophobic murderer. And yet, before the foundation, God chose him. And he chose the Ephesians to be in on the ground floor of this unique moment in time, this moment when God is bringing all of history to its climactic moment. Paul is saying, holy cow, how did I get to be in on this? How did I get to be in on the ground floor of this? Who am I to have gotten to live at this moment? And who am I to get to be a part of this plan that God has that he's making all things new in and through Jesus? In verses 7 through 8, he starts celebrating Not that God has done this, but how he's done it. How at a massive cost to himself, God rescued Paul and the Ephesians from the bondage and slavery of sin. God redeemed Paul and the Ephesians and us. He redeemed us and captured us and brought us back to real life. Remember, Paul was trapped in xenophobia. He was trapped in racism. He was trapped in pride. He was trapped in all of the death ways that ravage people in this world. And at, the, at a huge cost, 
the cost of his own son's life, God rescued Paul and the Ephesians and us. And that dumbfounds Paul. He's overwhelmed by that. And then in verses 9 and 10, he, he cataracts from that into praising and adoring God for revealing that God's work is not just about redeeming Paul and the Ephesians. It is to sum up the entire cosmos into Jesus. Paul has had his eyes opened to how massive the work of God is, how huge the plan of God is. This plan blows Paul away. It is deeper than the ocean. It is wider than the, the, the cosmos. It is huge. It's massive. God is going to sum everything up in Jesus. And Paul's had a glimpse of that. And he gets to see that. And then in verses 11 through 14, we get to share in that. We get to share in Jesus' inheritance. What is Jesus' inheritance in the book of Ephesians and throughout the New Testament? It is the whole cosmos renewed. This whole world is going to be summed up in Christ. Everything that destroys one another, that's going to be taken away. Nations are going to be brought together. We see in chapter 2, we see in chapter 5 that husbands and wives will finally learn how to get along together. God is going to heal everything from the cosmic to the micro. He's going to solve it all. He's going to set everything free from death and destruction. And guess what? That's our inheritance. We get to live in this world renewed. We get to be a part of all of that. And to that, Paul says, holy cow. And so like I said, if you can take it as a whole, what is most striking is how relentless Paul is in seeing that everything God has done, is doing, and will do is in and through Jesus. In fact, 11 times in 12 verses, Paul says, in Christ. In him, in the beloved. He can't, one of the reasons it's so confusing to read this prayer is because he can't get on any train of thought without going back to the fact that it's in Christ. It's a rabbit's worn everywhere is leading into this thing. This is so important to Paul. He qualifies every blessing of God by saying that it comes in Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual. Every blessing comes in Christ. This is what's overwhelming. It's so important to Paul that we've got to make sure we understand what he means when he says this little bitty phrase, in Christ. Because if you start debating any of these phrases without holding clearly in your mind the thing he's saying over and over and over, you're going to drift off. You see, Paul was a Jew. And when he says that God gives us every spiritual blessing in Christ, and then he goes to name a bunch of them, going back all of them being in Christ, he's speaking with a Jewish frame of reference. You see, the Jewish people, at least a significant amount of them, they thought that a king represents his people. And because a king represents his people, what happens to the king happens to the people. What is true of the king is true of the people. 
Let me show you how this develops in Jewish thought because Paul's writing as a Jew and he's bringing 2,000 years of history with him. A little earlier, Bob Brown read to us the story of David fighting Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And just before our reading, 1 Samuel 17, in chapter 16, David had been anointed the king of Israel, but Israel doesn't know it. And they don't believe it. So in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David shows up on the battlefield. And nobody but David knows the king has arrived. He volunteers to fight. Israel's most fearsome enemy. The Philistines. And he does it by going after the champion of the Philistines. The most fearsome of the Philistine warriors. Goliath. Can you see Goliath in your imagination? Dressed in bronze armor from head to toe. And can you see David, shrimpy little David, full of confidence? Why is he so confident? Because he says, I've killed what? What did he kill before this moment? A bear and a lion. Because he's killed a lion and a bear, he says, I can take this guy. And sure enough, David defeats the metallic beast through massive head trauma. First a stone and then decapitation. And then the people of Israel realize that David, not Saul... David is the one who will lead them into God's future. David defeated Goliath. And so it says in 1 Samuel 17, 52, Then the people of Israel, what was true of David, is true of us. Rise up. They find their courage. They chase down the Philistines. And they kill them all over these hard-to-pronounce cities. Now fast forward four or five hundred years or so in the story In a book of the Old Testament called Daniel, we see the people of Israel once again ravaged by another nation who's represented by a metallic giant. In Daniel chapter 2, a metallic giant statue is dominating and cowering Israel into fear. And then in Daniel chapter 7, well, and then at the end of chapter 2, do you know what destroys that giant metallic beast? Does anybody know? A stone. And then in Daniel chapter 7, Israel is once again suffering under another nation. This time it is the mighty Babylonian empire. And Daniel's given a vision of various beasts representing Babylon. And not just Babylon, but the great nations that are going to follow Babylon. Greece and Rome. Represented by a series of increasingly ferocious beasts. A lion and a bear. 
And these lions and these bears are enslaving God's people once again. And in the vision that God gives to Daniel 600 years prior to Christ, God tells Israel, do not fear. I've handled these things before. I've been handling them so that you would learn I can handle them. And I will handle them again. I will defeat them. And the way it happens in Daniel chapter 7 is one like the Son of Man who prepares with a lion and a bear, takes on the greatest beast of all. And then in our gospel reading, Mark's gospel, chapter 3, before we get to chapter 3, in Mark chapter 1, we find that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. The beast tamer has arrived on the scene. And then in chapter 3, what does this beast tamer do who is already prepared with the beast? In Mark chapter 3, he picks up all of this imagery and he says, I am the great beast tamer. I am the one that all of these stories have been pointing to. And sure enough, on the cross, Jesus, the rock that is rejected, the cornerstone, defeats the scaly-chested serpent by crushing his head and winning the victory over the oldest and most dangerous enemy of all. And so when Paul celebrates in worship, that we are in Christ. We are the ancient Israelites in the valley. Goliath's been destroyed. We are in the king. What was true of him is true of us. When God said over the sun, this is my beloved, we're now in Christ. The eternal delight that the father has for the son, he has it of us even a recovering xenophobic SS guard who murders this racist man. He's caught up into the love affair of the father and the son. But he's not only caught up into the love affair, he's caught up into the victory that Christ has had over our greatest enemy, death, darkness, and evil. And so when Paul celebrates in worship, this is what he can't get away from. I'm in Christ. God has won the victory. This drama that I've seen play out in historical events, in prophetic literature, in poetic metaphor, it's actually played out in the cosmos. It's played out with my greatest enemy. Paul never gets tired of telling this story. And when Paul starts telling this story, he trips into worship. And so can you see Paul sitting in a Roman prison, insisting that while it looks on the outside like he's a prisoner of Rome, he's going, no, 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 no. Rome has not captured me. Christ has captured me. He captured me from the God of this world. God has this grand story that he's telling, and it's all going to plan. God is in control. 
He's not caught off guard by my chains. And Paul knows, like so many of you know, that God didn't tell his disciples that he, that Jesus didn't tell the disciples God loves you and has a plan for your life. No, Jesus said something quite different than that. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said that whenever God is at work, there's a cost. Wherever we are called to follow Jesus, there will be a cross. Wherever we discover that we are gifted in particular ways and we want to use those for the glory of God rather than for our own glory, there will be something which causes us pain. Paul talked about a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being too elated about the abundance of revelations he was given. But don't be afraid. The Ephesians are discouraged. Just like Paul is in change, they are suffering. They are in the minority. They're facing the brutal Roman government. They are suffering and Paul is saying, I'm in chains. But God is not losing control. He's saying to them, keep the big picture in view. You've got to keep the big picture in view. You've got to keep the end in view. You're getting discouraged. You're losing hope. Don't do that. Don't be afraid. God called you to be uniquely who you are. That's the wonderful thing about being a Christian. From one point of view, we're all the same because we're all in Christ. But from another point of view, every one of us is an unrepeatable uniqueness created in Christ Jesus to do things for God in this world that only we can do. There are things, Paul says, look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Paul says we're as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that, that, that should be our way of life. Before the foundation of time, God, God chose David Cooper to do something that nobody else can do in this world. When he says good works there, does he talk about good moral behavior? Yes, but he is talking about so much more than that. He's talking about the work of your life. He's talking about your vocation. He's saying that, look, God is in control and he's put you here. He's picked you. He's brought you into Harrisonburg. And look, your job is to look at all the things you can do and pick out the one or two or three that nobody else in this world can do. And that's your vocation. And you go for it. Artist, show this world, this world that it seems like the only art we can find nowadays is either kitsch or brutalism. We need Christian artists to show up in music and poetry and storytelling and to uncover the beauty that's in this world and to adorn the beauty that's here with even more beauty. And lawyers and homemakers, we all need to find our way, school teachers, we need to find our way to bring ourselves into this world, to bring not to this world to our own glory, but to bring God's glory into this world by being ourselves. And this is hard. 
This is really, really hard. And Paul is going to spend the rest of the letter to the Ephesians telling them, look, I'm in prison and that stinks. And you're a multi-ethnic church and that stinks. It's hard to get along with different cultures and different traditions and different ethnic groups. This is hard work we've got to do. This is overwhelming work we've got to do. Husbands have to love their wives, and wives have to honor and respect their husbands. And you've got to treat your employer, even if he treats you like a slave, you've got to treat him with honor and dignity. We have got really hard work in front of us. And the whole letter is Paul working out of this prayer, working out of this worship of this huge picture, saying the only way we can get on with the work is if we remember we are in Christ. We're the, Phil- we're the Israelites chasing the Philistines. The victory's been won. This world doesn't necessarily know it. Do your job. He's got He's got it under control. He's put you here in Harrisonburg for a reason. You're a gift to this community. Stop doing what he's... Don't stop doing what he's called you to do because you mistakenly think that your chains means he's lost control. Don't give up hope. Don't forget where this thing is heading. God is filling and redeeming all things. All things are being remade. They're being made new. And God is receiving glory from this. How in the world is Paul able to keep this perspective when he is suffering mightily in prison? Because Paul worships. All genuine Christian life. All genuine Christian action flows out of worship. True worship. Of the true God. It cannot help but tell and retell with joy and amazement the story of what God has done in Jesus the Messiah. Let's pray.